Hello, hello. Welcome back, you guys, to the Caught Bread Podcast. As always, we are your host. I'm Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. We are so amazed and so thankful for everyone who's been turning tuning in. It's been wild to think that like we just started this like a month and a half-ish. Not even. Not even? Yeah, a little over a month. A little over a month. See, I don't even know. Time's been flying. Jesse is actually the one that wanted to start this. He came to me and he's like, I want to do a podcast. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then he did all the research on the equipment and the programs to use. And then like one day he was just like, happy anniversary. I did it. And Let's I was like, oh, it. Lord, here we go. Said, why not? Might yeah. as well. He bought everything right then and there. And so here happy, we are. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. And when we started this, we didn't know what to expect. And now we're on our seventh episode. Doing good. Doing real good. It's fun. I enjoy it. So We've had a lot of trial and error along the way, but I think we've kind of got it figured out how we're going to do this for the most part. So thank you all for riding along with us until Bear, we figured it. with us, yeah. Yes, that's a nice way to put it. And if you guys haven't noticed, we have a new trailer that Jesse assembled uh, I think it's, is it just on our Instagram or? No, it's, it's on Spotify and All Apple that? and everywhere. Yeah. Oh, very nice. See, I don't know. He's, he's our social media manager over here. <laughs> but I'm trying. <laughs> he took a lot of phrases that we've used through our like other episodes and he spliced them together. And he's really impressed me with like everything he's learned so far with like this recording program. And he'll be like the first person to tell you, I'm not very tech savvy. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I don't either. I'm just learning as I'm going. I don't either. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I had mentioned uh, a DM from Anna Lee. She sent us some links to articles about like the human feet washing up on the shore of Washington State and articles about bodies in a suitcase that she came across from the area she lives in. So I got to set myself a reminder and share those. So if anybody wants to read about oh, yeah, what's going are... up there in Washington State. Ooh, it's, those are creepy. I don't, oh, I didn't like them at all. And then last week when we did Holly Bobo, I mentioned a guy named Larry Stone who was a ginseng hunter. And our friend Caleb messaged us. Shout and, out. Yes. And he said that ginseng is like... You can get like $600 per pound. So it's very valuable, which is why there's a specific way to harvest it and preserve it, which is a couple of reasons why you have to be licensed to hunt it. And he did say it probably takes uh, quite a bit of ginseng to equal a pound. And he was very livid and full of questions on that case, but I think we all were. And I got to work Friday morning and my dad was like, okay. As soon as you walked in, like, right? As soon as I walked in, dad was like, Okay, Chester the molester is not innocent. He said it could have been he could have been the one that like got in the woods and had his way with her. Then the friends came across her, and they did what they did, or vice versa. And he thinks the brother is a piece of shit. Which I think a lot of people were like, "What is going on with him?" Not to I like, sure was. I was like, "Come on, man." Yeah, because like, what if they're all over at the house for for drugs because the brother was. Like, maybe he was on something because he was out of it, you know? Like, how do you not hear screaming? Like, were you that groggy and, like, fell asleep? And then, oh, you, like, stirred back away from the dog? Because right. so he was up earlier with her, right, when she was studying? Like, he talk, He had a conversation with her. Or no? No. No? Oh, I was talking to your dad. He he seemed to think so. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, I oh you talked did. to dad about it, oh, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've had a full-on <laughs> conversation with it, too. Yeah, so dad, like as soon as I walked in, he was like, all right, I have questions. And I was like, we all do. And by the way, I don't know who has watched it yet, but Netflix aired The Sins of the Mother, their special about Lori Vallow. And Jesse has no idea who that is or anything around that case. I told him like a three sentence, like Reader's Digest version of it, but... Dear God, if we ever cover that, it's going to be like two or three episodes long because there's so much crap. So if y'all haven't watched it yet, go do it. She always asks me, have you heard of this person? I'm just like, no. <laughs> so you're always going to be the one that hears about this person before I do. Yes. Except for this case right here that we're doing today, though. Well, it's funny you say that because I was literally going to be like, 
Jesse has a sports ball story for us today in honor of the NFL game starting. And he mentions, like, anytime he mentions some, some player's name, I'm like, who's that? Which is like the version of me telling him about a true crime story. And he's like, who's that? Exactly. <laughs> so y'all don't be surprised that if he, like, tells y'all about one of his drafts throughout this episode, because I think he has, like, 31 of them. Shut up. <laughs> So you ready, love? Let's do it. Let's do this thing. My sources are GQ.com with an article called The Dirtiest Player by Jason Fagone, uh, BleacherReport.com, Deadspin.com, GlobalTel.com, CNSMaryland.org, and SportsCasting.com. So yeah, like Megan said, since the NFL season started a couple weeks ago, I thought... We should do a case involving a former NFL player. And, yeah, Megan calls football and pretty much any other sport sports ball. And sports ball. That's, the like, the first time I've ever even heard anyone say that was, was Megan. Like, what is sports ball? <laughs> My whole ball? family calls it sports ball. <laughs> yeah, so now I kind of call it that, too. But I bet if there's a murder involved, her head will perk up. If she knew the star player was involved in a true crime case, she'd watch a game with me probably, right? Yes. Yes. And when you think of high-profile NFL murder cases, you think of O.J. Simpson, Aaron, Aaron, Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez. But I didn't want to do one very well-known like that. In fact, I didn't even know this guy was involved in a murder case until just last week. My friend Vor told me about it. And I was like, what? No way. And... That's saying something because I watch a lot of football. Yeah. And I'm only in four different fantasy football <laughs> leagues this lot. year. Judge me all you want. It's fine. I can say the same thing about you. You probably listen to four or more true crime podcasts. So that's <laughs> it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. If not more than four, I'm sure. Coach Jesse over here with his drafts. Yeah. And when I think of crime in sports, NFL is always like the first league that comes to my mind. But in reality, in the last three years, the arrest rate for NFL players is actually lower than the arrest rate of the national population. Huh. Yeah, one out of every 45 for NFL players versus one out of every 23 on the national level. Well, I think the first thing that pops in my mind just because of my background is the whole sexual abuse scandal with the gymnastics committee and the doctor. Yeah. So we're definitely on different levels. Oh, yeah. Oh. And approximately 7% of the people who played in the NFL from 2000 to 2014 has been arrested one time or another. So, I mean, 7%. I don't know. What? Take it, take it with what you will. You think that's a lot? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a lower rate than the group of similarly aged men in the U.S. general population. So even though athletes are statistically less violent than the average population, you still you tend to see professional athletes on the news for their crimes more than yes. the normal person. And they also tend to get away with crimes more than the normal person you think. Money you know. yeah. talks. Money talks. And I always just think to myself, these guys make millions to play the game. Why are they doing stupid shit to ruin that opportunity for themselves, right? The professional basketball player Charles Barkley, we both like him a yes, lot. He once I said, I am not a role model. Parents should be role models. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. I like that. Yeah, I 100% agree. So this case I'm doing today involves a player I probably never would have expected to be doing a true crime case about, unless maybe he was the victim. Marvin Harrison is one of the greatest wide receivers in NFL history. I've never even heard of do you him. Know, do you know what a wide receiver is? I know. <laughs> I've seen The Replacements. Okay. But I've never even heard of him. Well, I remember playing with him in Madden games. Oh, really? Back on the... PS2. <laughs> yeah. He played for the Indianapolis Colts, and him and Peyton Manning were just an unstoppable duo, so I just always played with the Colts. And then he was born and raised in Philadelphia, but he ended up being drafted by the Colts in Indianapolis. So 
and he went on to record 1,102 career receptions along with nearly 15,000 receiving yards. And for those who don't know football... Please. <laughs> I was just be like, what is that? Is that good? Yeah, I mean... Career receptions, he was fifth all-time behind only Jerry Rice. You, you've heard of him. No? Larry Fitzgerald, Tony Gonzalez, Jason Whitney? I've heard the name Rice before. Okay. Well, they're all Hall of Famers. Okay. And he was fourth most 100-yard games, which is awesome. Good so, for him. Yeah. Anyways, it just helped that he had one of the best quarterbacks playing with him, and he finished his career in 2008 – Nearly $67 million in career earnings. Jesus Christ. That's just in his NFL contracts alone. So, like, sponsors, I'm sure he made nearly just as much, you know, all the off-the-field stuff. I can't—it baffles so me much how money. much money they get played for running around little tap pants and throwing <laughs> little football to each other. You could donate that much. Like, those companies rebuild towns and shit for what they pay— a person to go play sport. Oh, yeah. That is ridiculous. Yes, I will be on my soapbox probably very often about that. Tell them. Tell them how it is. That's the dumbest shit. Well, he was one of few athletes who stayed on the same team throughout his entire career, and he seemed to do everything right. He was a role model athlete. He was one of those wide receivers that would never talk trash. He just went out there, did his job, and he did it well. And he was one of the most respected players in the NFL by players and fans alike. But somehow, Marvin Harrison proved that he wasn't this class act, quiet, model athlete that everybody thought he was. Behind the scenes. Well, something happened just months after he played his last football play that will definitely make you question his character. So let's take you back a little bit in time first. So okay. three years before Marvin Harrison was born, there was a another man on the street of Philadelphia, also known by the name of Marvin. His name was Marvin Greer. He was a 16-year-old gang member. He lived in a high-rise housing project in South Philly. On January 15, 1969, Greer and three friends spotted a boy from another gang. Greer chased him down and stabbed the boy in the back with a four-inch pearl-handled knife, killing him. Jesus. He threw the knife into the sewer, and later on he ended up pleading guilty to second-degree murder. Then about five years later, in 1974, he suddenly died at the age of 22. And there was no mention of his death in the newspapers, and the cause remains a mystery. But before he died... He fathered at least three boys with different mothers, the eldest boy being Marvin Harrison. Okay. So back in Pennsylvania, juvenile felons were furloughed for good behavior, giving them a chance to get outside, so that's how that happened. You know, he was in prison, so... For second-degree murder. Well, <laughs> I guess... And they're like, oh, you spent enough time here. Go on. I guess they Go do. Go randomly impregnate women. Oh, my God. I guess they do things a little different in Pennsylvania. I don't know. I don't know. One of Marvin's half-brothers, Marquand Gordon, was part of a seven armed robberies in Philadelphia from 1995 to 97. Seven? Seven armed robberies. He was also an enforcer with the Junior Black Mafia. He is currently serving 140 years in a federal prison in White Deer, Pennsylvania. So that's one of Marvin's half-brothers. His other half-brother, Marvin Woods, also another Marvin, in 1991, at the age of 17, when he was playing in a championship basketball game, when his coach took him out of the game and put another player in his place, Woods got angry and left the game, came back 20 minutes later on his bike carrying a Tech 9 semi-automatic pistol, and sprayed his substitute with bullets, <gasps> killing him, and then just rode off. And he is also c currently serving a life sentence oh for first-degree murder. God. So, yeah. So, this is one of those arguments, like, nature versus nurture. That's straight-up nature. That is genetics. Those are poor genetics passed down. Those, I think so. God. <laughs> so, those, yeah, those are both his half-brothers. And then, more than recent years, 
Marvin Harrison's cousin Lonnie uh, has been convicted of robbery, drug possession, possessing an illegal firearm. And then another cousin, Issa Muhammad, was murdered in the aftermath of an eight-man shootout. The police described the murder as a revenge killing. So, yeah, it just sounds like oh my Philadelphia can be a pretty scary place to grow up. Again, just thinking about how much players make, if they would have taken some of that money or the team donates some of that money to, like, youth centers or something up that way, then maybe these kids wouldn't be so shitty. Yeah. Well, they probably do, but, I mean... I mean, but still, still. that is wild. That's just one family. That's just one family. That's just one family. No wonder Will Smith whistled for a cab and went to Bel Air. Oh, my God. (laughs) I knew it was coming. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, but it was really amazing what Marvin Harrison was able to accomplish getting to the NFL growing up in that type of area and being so great for so long. I mean, he was a hard worker. He was, he was the guy at practice that never wore his gloves because gloves were sticky and they'd help you catch the ball. So Mm -hmm. he wanted to make it difficult for himself. It was like the stick you know, Clifford Frankham used (laughs) in the replacements. Looks like I just jacked off an (laughs) elephant. He was a neat freak, a perfectionist. I mean, just think the discipline you got to have to be an NFL star, you know. You see players get in trouble all the time nowadays, domestic violence, drug charges. He made it 12 years in the league without a scratch on his record. Wow. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm, I think, you know, Henry Ruggs, do you remember him? He was the player from Las Vegas Raiders that was driving 160 oh, miles an hour yeah, last, like last year, year yeah. and crashed into the car with Tina Tentor and her dog trapped inside, and the yes. car went up in flames. Ugh. Yeah, crazy. And that's still going on. Like they've pushed back his pre- his preliminary hearing mm-hmm. five times, and actually just yesterday they were. He was seen doing, like, workout drills and stuff. Like, man, you're not going to play any more football for the rest of your life. There's no way. Jesus. And then you think of guys like Deshaun Watson, who's over here with two dozen lawsuits against him for sexual harassment and sexual abuse. Jeez. Yeah, and he's reached settlements with 20 out of 24 of them. Is he broke yet? (laughs) No, because... The Cleveland Browns went ahead and signed him to a five-year, $230 million deal. Shut your mouth. Even knowing all this stuff is going on. Like, come <sighs> on, the NFL's got to hold these players accountable. And you for... wonder why we hate <laughs> this stuff. So Ugh. when Marvin Harrison finished up with the Colts, he returned to where he's always called home, Philadelphia. He, his family was large, and they were close. And although, you know, some had violent past, some were successful. His uncle, Vincent, was a respected anesthesiologist at Temple University Hospital. Good for him. Yeah. And his mother, Linda, and his stepfather, Anthony, were, were good business people, worked hard and fed needy families when they could. Good. And Marvin, I mean, he gave back to his community as much as he could. And in 2006, for example, he donated 88 turkey dinners to poor... Uh, of North Philly for Thanksgiving. And that's before he was, because you said he ended his career in 2008? Yeah, so this is like during his playing times. He splurged a little bit, you know, making $66 million. He bought a house for his mother in Montgomery County. He bought himself a 7,600-square-foot home in Jenkington. What are you doing with all that (laughs) space, bro? Why do you need 7,600 square feet? I could put a lot of dogs in that. Right. But really, he was, he was more conservative with his money than most pro athletes. If you ask people around Philly what Marvin was like, they'd say he was cheap. You would probably find him on the streets working at one of his businesses. He ran a car wash. He had a sports bar. He had a soul food kitchen. And he had more than a dozen rental and investment properties that he got at bargain prices. He didn't like other people running his businesses because he was either too detail-oriented or too stingy to let other people run them. I understand that I don't blame him. He was pretty much building a little mini empire in his neighborhood. So Harrison's bar is called Playmakers. It is an upscale bar with a couple pool tables, an old-school Galaga arcade console. Fine. 
the walls are covered with framed NFL jerseys like Donovan McNabb, who was his quarterback in college at Syracuse, and then like guys like Jerry Rice, but there was no Marvin Harrison jerseys or photos on the walls because who needs memorabilia when the man himself is He's in there, there working? So in mid-April 2008, a 32-year-old man named Dwight Dixon was standing with a friend at the front door of Playmakers demanding to be let inside. Dixon watched as his friend was pat down by Marvin and just so happened that that friend had a gun and Marvin told him to get lost and Dixon said, quote, fuck you, fuck the bar and I'll fuck you up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Pardon my French. Dwight Dixon was, quote, 300 pounds of swagger squeezed into expensive Gucci and polo shirts. And he saw himself as Harrison's equal. I mean, they both grew up in the same North Philly neighborhood and, and knew each other as kids. And they grew up in the worst times when gangs ruled the neighborhoods, old industries were dying, and heroin was flooding the streets. And Dixon chose to sell drugs while Harrison chose football. And everyone called Dixon pop for some reason, hmm. and he was not welcome in Playmakers. Obviously. Yeah, and Harrison made that clear that night. And Pop wasn't someone you wanted to cross path with. In 1994, he had gone to state prison for dealing crack and spent six years in there, and he told a close friend, everybody sucks up to Marvin, and I don't. A week after Pop was banned from the Playmakers, he drove down to Chucky's garage, which is Marvin Harrison's car wash, and demanded a car wash. And he, obviously he was denied there, too. And then that Friday, he went back to Playmakers, turned away again. Mr. Oh, I don't care. You're working real hard. Then the next Tuesday, he was confronted by Harrison. Harrison describes it in detail in his statement to the police. Harrison says... I walked down and asked him why he was continually threatening me, threatening me and coming to my business and harassing my employees. And Pop told me he was a grown man and can do what it, and go wherever he wants and say what he wants. And he will mess me up and mess the bar up. And Pop put his hands up and swung at me. He grazed me on my left shoulder and chin. I swung back and missed. We wrestled and threw punches a little bit. I then walked up the street back to my garage. I guess like five minutes later, he backs up the street to in front of my car wash, gets on the phone and is saying, get your guns. I'm going to fuck up Marv. You ain't no gangster. I told him that I wasn't a gangster, but that he couldn't keep coming back to my place of business and threatening me and starting trouble. He drove off down the street and I was inside the garage when I heard gunshots like right after that. So that was his statement to the police. Now, this wasn't the only account of what happened that night either. Jason Fagone, the GQ magazine investigative reporter guy, sat down with a witness and wrote an article called The Dirtiest Player. And most of what I've got about this one witness will come from that. So a man by the name of Robert Nixon had apparently seen everything. He claimed that he had seen enough to potentially put a rich and famous NFL superstar, future Hall of Famer, in prison. But Robert said he didn't know Dixon, or Dwight Dixon, but he had seen him around. And on this day, and it was broad daylight, by the way, Robert saw Marvin Harrison and his employee, Stanley McRae, beat the crap out of Dwight Dixon. He looked pretty messed up from Robert's point of view. And after a few minutes, Harrison and McRae walk away. Dwight will slowly get up, start cussing at Marv, and gets in his truck. And then Har Harrison gets in his car, too, which was in front of his car wash. So all this is pretty accurate. Uh-huh. Dwight backed his truck all the way in front of Harrison's, blocking him in. And Robert saw Harrison get out of his car and exchange words with Dwight. He couldn't hear the words, but he could see the gestures. They are threatening each other. And Dwight stayed in his truck. While Harrison, meanwhile, got back into his car, called somebody with his cell phone, and after a minute or two, Harrison got out of his car for a second time, and Robert said he saw Harrison raise both arms up, each with a gun in hand, and then Robert was across the street about 30 yards away. He sees Harrison start shooting. He hears pop, 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 pop. 
Harrison unloaded the both guns, peppering the red Toyota Tundra with bullet holes as Dwight ducked in his seat. And eventually, Dwight drove off heading straight toward where Robert was standing. Robert was now in the line of fire, and more shots rang out. I'll do the pop, pop, pop again. <laughs> pop, 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 pop. Dwight was lucky enough to survive this altercation with just a gunshot wound to the hand. He got pretty lucky. And since Robert was in the line of fire, he got shot in the back. Jeez. He didn't realize it at first because of the adrenaline. I don't know how. (laughs) So by this time, Marvin and Dwight had both fled the scene of the crime, and Robert was still there trying to get to his car. And a police officer ended up showing up around that time and spotted Robert running, thinking he was the suspect. So he stops him, pats him down for weapons, didn't even notice his gunshot wound. And Robert just tells him, I ain't seen nothing. So he's got this whole story that he could have told, but he didn't see nothing. And he's got a hole in his back. (laughs) Yeah. Robert Nixon saw what happened, chose to keep quiet, being from the streets of Philadelphia, snitching to the cops could end very badly for him. You see there there are two different sides of this story. On one account, you got Marvin Harrison saying Dwight Dixon started the fight and then he wasn't even there when the shots were fired. And then you got this account from Robert who says he saw Marvin shoot up Dwight's truck. So who's telling the truth? I mean, Evidence never lies. Right, and does it even matter though because... Robert initially tells the cops that he didn't see anything. So, I mean, like, these witness testimonies, like, do they even matter? After the shooting, Dwight Dixon got a ride to the hospital, which was five miles from Chucky's garage where the shooting happened. The hospital staff called the cops, as they're required to do when they see a shooting victim. Yes. The cops arrived, asked him for his name, and he tells them Malik Tucker. What a random name. (laughs) It was one of his many aliases. Oh, He's got Demetrius Bryant, Dwight Dixon, Dante Jones, Dwight Mobley. 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 <laughs> yeah, Mobley. <laughs> he told them that he'd been robbed at 62nd and Lebanon, several miles west of the actual shooting. So again, another false statement to the police. I mean, you can only assume they're just doing this because snitches get stitches, right? I'm um, just thinking, like, you gave him a false name and a false location. One of the two could have been the truth, and the police could have just... Yeah. Okay. I mean, to be a witness in Philadelphia, even if you're a 300-pound drug dealer, I mean, you can even say, especially if you're a, a drug dealer, I mean, what kind of reputation would that have on the streets? I mean, you you definitely have a target on your back. Witnesses and relatives of witnesses, uh, I read, had been murdered in the city at least 13 times between 2001 and 2010. Or, I was thinking another theory, he might have wanted to deal with Marvin Harrison on his own another time and not get the police involved. So He could still little, do that regardless. Well, yeah, but he's... People he, take things into their hands all the time. Yeah. And, and I, if y'all have heard, like, random noises in the background, that's just <laughs> derby. She's, like, been talking and scratching the floor. Big stretch. Big stretch. Another theory was that Dwight lied to the cops because he had shot back at Harrison with a gun of his own. He wouldn't want an attempted murder on him, you know, so... Has he already got... He's already gone to prison, though, right? Oh, yeah. So he's he's a felon with a gun, and that'd be even more trouble for him. Yeah, he's already got probation and everything. But no gun of Dwight's was ever found, but... Casings were recovered from three types of guns, a 5.7, a 9mm, and a 40 caliber. And two fired 9mm casings were found in the cab of Dwight's truck. Soon after, the cops at the hospital got a call from the cops back at 25th and Thompson, which was the address of Chucky's garage. A red Toyota Tundra full of bullet holes was being towed there. The person who had called the tow truck was Dwight Dixon's girlfriend. So the cops now knew that Pop was lying to them. Mm -hmm. They were like, you better come clean. And Pop just kind of grinned at them. And the mood around Dixon's hospital bed was just relaxed, cheerful. And the cops, I mean, they had a, I mean, they knew he was bullshitting them. 
and he was and Dixon told him he was like, you know who shot me, you know who shot me. Come on, just kind of toying with him. Well, the police ended up keeping Dwight in custody overnight to give him time to cool off and maybe rethink his story. He should be in custody regardless. Right. And the next day, they began gathering evidence. And acting on a tip, they plugged Marvin Harrison's name and date of birth into his state database of gun licenses. A long list of guns came up, including two five-seven pistols. A long list. And the cops already knew that some of the casings recovered at the scene came from this type of gun. The 5.7 had been described in newspapers and on ESPN as custom-made and a collector's weapon. But that's not accurate. A 5.7 is a lightweight, low-recoil, high-capacity, semi-automatic tactical pistol. It's not your average drug dealer pistol, basically. Uh, oh, it's classier. Yeah, it's much classier. The Philly officer who recovered the casing said he had never seen anything like them before. And later that day, about a dozen plainclothes and uniformed officers, including some guys from the state attorney general's gun violence task force, Jesus, drove to Chucky's garage in search of the 5-7. And Marvin Harrison seemed to know that they were coming because he was just lounging in a, in a cheap beach chair. <laughs> Next to a full-size cardboard cutout of himself. That's great. And he seemed calm, and he had his his right foot propped up on the pool table. Well, I'm sure, because he's a pillar of the community, he's got friends in the police department. They're probably like, hey, bro, you you about to get uh, raided or checked out. Gave him a little heads up. Probably. Prob- yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Why else would he just be out there chilling? Yeah. At this point, a lieutenant, Marvin Harrison, and his stepfather, Anthony, went into the car wash's office, and then 15 minutes later they came out, and Anthony, his stepfather, said, Detective, I know what you've come for. It's right over here. And he led the detectives to a filing cabinet. In front of the cabinet was a trash bucket. Behind the bucket, lying on the floor, was the 5.7. It was fully loaded, 19 bullets in the clip and one in the chamber. Ballistics tests would eventually prove that five of six casings did match the gun hammer. At this point, Marvin Harrison still wasn't under arrest, though. Wait, so they come looking for this gun, and it's just on the floor, though? Like it's it wasn't just there. Yeah. But but it's fully loaded again. Yeah. Which means obviously they reloaded to make it look like he never shot it. But why would you leave it on the floor? Why would you not put it up in a case or something like that? To be like, make that would make me think, oh, they've most likely not used it. It's in its like belonged area, but why it's, it's on in the a fl- weird hiding space yes. behind a trash bucket under the filing cabinets. I don't know. Because you're gonna, sh- you showed them where it was anyways. It's not like you're trying to hide it. Right. Okay. Very very sketchy. Proceed. Yeah. Harrison voluntarily went down to the Central Detective Division for about an hour with his, his lawyer, Jerome Brown, by his side, along with his stepfather. And when he finished the signed, he signed every page on a seven-page statement with a single M for Marvin. In his statement, Harrison admits that he fought with Dwight Dixon five to ten minutes before the shooting. He said immediately before he heard the gunshots, he was sitting in the doorway of his garage. The detectives ask him if Dwight had a gun that day, and Harrison says no. So basically, in his own words, Harrison establishes his motive, mm-hmm. puts himself at the scene of the crime, and eliminates any possible self-defense. So, But that's his property. Do yeah. they have the law there that you can defend your property like we do here? Defend against what? If Dwight didn't have a gun... That don't mean he can't physically still harm him. If if uh, Marvin thought he was going to be in some sort of danger, weapon or not, he here, where we live in Arkansas, he would have the right to just start to protect. Shooting. I don't know about start shooting, but <laughs> to protect his property and himself. Well, I don't know. I was either just way, it's not a good look. Well, no, but he had. I mean, that time when uh, he was at the club and he had the gun on him. Was that ever, like, a? did he ever make a police report about that when he kicked him out or anything? 
Oh, so no. there's no record of previous right. interactions no, he, with him. And it wasn't Dwight Dixon's gun. It was his friend's gun. Oh, okay. So Dang. Marvin was I was asked, trying to give him, you yeah, know. right. I was trying to help, help a brother out. He was asked a set of questions, and I'm going to go over them all with you. And he pretty much admits to continuous and unbroken custody of the gun. So the question was, when was the last time you or anyone else fired your FN... 5'7 caliber handgun. Marvin says, probably the day I bought it. They ask, what day was that? He says, in 2006 or 2007. They say, where do you store this weapon? He says, in a safe at my home in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. So not the floor of his <laughs> right. car wash. They said, well, today you had it at the car wash. Do you know how it got there? Marvin said, I brought it to today 20 minutes before you came. Oh, Okay. The detective said, are you saying that the 5.7 caliber handgun that you own was in the safe at your home up until today when you decided to bring it to your shop in the 2500 block of Thompson Street? Marvin says, yes. So, he says his gun hasn't been fired since 2006 or 2007. That's impossible, right? Because mm -hmm. fresh casings exist. Yes, there's so the gun fresh had to bullet been fired. holes in a car. So, who did the shooting? I mean, he Garrett, said he came with his lawyer too, right? Yeah, that is a terrible lawyer. Right? Tell him Tell to <laughs> stop answering these questions. Yeah, right. Harrison doesn't know the answer to who did the shooting. All he knows is that the gun couldn't have been lent or stolen because it was locked away the whole time in his suburban safe. Except it couldn't have been in the safe either because it had to have made an appearance at Chucky's garage. It just his story doesn't add up. No, he is a terrible liar. <laughs> On May 2nd, that's three days after the shooting, Robert Nixon contacted the police, the witness guy. Good. It went against his better judgment, but he felt like he was out of options at this point. He was scared. He was scared because he had been contacted by some of Marvin Harrison's people. Well, he also got shot. So yeah. has he not been to a hospital to get treated? Because then he would have been... Reported to the police regardless. He went on May 1st, yeah, but Marvin Harrison's people offered to pay for his surgery to remove the bullet, and if oh. Nixon stayed away from the police, they'd pay him some good money to gotcha. you know, keep his mouth shut. That makes more sense. And at this point, he was ready to make a deal because he really just wanted it all to be over. I guess he felt like he had a target on his back. Literally. And they wanted him to meet up with them in West Philly, specifically in the woods across from the Philadelphia Zoo at 2 in the morning. Nope. Yeah, Nixon was like, nope. He shuts his phone off, and the next thing he knew, you know, there was news of the shooting all over the papers, and his voicemail was piling up with death threats. That just makes me think, because we literally, here in, uh, right outside Greenboro, in Conway, like the bigger city, at 2 in the morning, we just had a shooting outside the TJ Maxx. And Megan still shopped there today. I didn't go today. I was at Target, <laughs> right, like two stores down. But still, nothing good happens at 2 a.m. Like mm, Nothing. Nixon didn't know if these threats were serious. He was, he was just a low-level hustler. He sold weed, cough syrup, and pills. Cough syrup. <laughs> right. He was a nobody, <laughs> and he knew that, and... But he had a very important bullet in his back, quite possibly the bullet of a gun used by a Hall of Famer. So. Oh, he hadn't gotten it. No, it's it's still there to this day. Like, they just treated him however you treat a bullet wound victim without pulling the bullet out. <laughs> but, yeah. My face right now. I know, you're just wide-eyed. <laughs> On May 3rd, the next day, Robert Nixon sat down with detectives and prosecutors at the office of the Philadelphia District Attorney and gave a formal statement. He told them about the fight in the front of the garage. He told them about Harrison and his guns. He told them about the meeting at the zoo that he didn't go to. <laughs> and they placed him in protective custody in a downtown hotel, and detectives tried to see if his story checked out. And there was a couple inaccuracies to Nixon's story. So Nixon claimed that Harrison had two guns, mm -hmm. but the neat 
even spacing of the recovered shells along the street convinced the cops that the shooter had been gripping a single gun with two hands. Okay. Keeping it steady. And also, the zoo story didn't check out exactly. Sources close to the case say that Nixon was the one who wanted the meeting to be at the zoo location because everyone knows that West Philly people don't go into North Philly and North Philly people don't go into West Philly. So when he... Huh. I guess he made the location be in his neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. But they were willing to to go there and meet him, so that's what made him worried. And the cops didn't think this was a big deal because the key story points were 100% provable. Looking at hospital records, detectives were able to discover that Nixon got treatment for the bullet on May 1st. Okay. They spoke with the cop who patted Nixon down at the scene of the shooting, and that cop remembered him. And one detective said that Nixon's story proved to be incredibly consistent and that it matched up well with statements from other witnesses. The detective said that they all had different pieces of the same story, and when you look at all the evidence, you have probable cause for an arrest warrant for Marvin. Okay. But the prosecutors saw this case different. So many times in the past, they had been screwed over by witnesses changing their stories All their witnesses were either hustlers with records, people who wouldn't cooperate with them, people who lied to them, or people who wouldn't be trusted by a jury. And Nixon matched most of those descriptions. Mm -hmm. And the prosecutors and cops agreed on this, but the cops were like, you know, there's degrees to it. You, You can't just throw a case out because one no good famous person might be guilty of shooting another no good infamous person in a not-so-good part of the city. So most of the cops believed that if Marvin Harrison was just your normal plumber or UPS driver instead of a famous athlete, he'd have definitely been arrested. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were worried about their job security, too. If they arrested this guy and they ended up being wrong, like, yeah, he's he's got money. Yeah. Money talks, always will. But in the end, it wasn't the cop's call. It was Lynn Abraham's call. She is the veteran Philly defense attorney. And she was on this case for more than eight months, and she called a press conference. And she had pretty much built her career on making life horrible for criminals with guns. But at her press conference, she spent much of the time questioning the credibility of the witnesses who cooperated and putting down the ones who hadn't. And the case would not be going forward due to, quote, she says, multiple, mutually exclusive, inherently untrustworthy, and sometimes false statements by the people present. So maybe some of the witnesses that came forward had been, quote unquote, witnesses on other crimes and proved to be false or something like that? That and they had records and just untrustworthy people, I guess. And I'm assuming... There's only a handful of people in that part of Philly that don't have a record. (laughs) Probably. Well, three weeks after this press conference, Dwight Dixon was arrested for making a false report to the police. The judge imposed a six-month probation, and, you know, I said he was already on probation Mm -hmm. for another case. Before that day, Dwight was willing to let the system give him some justice. He was actually suing Harrison in civil court for damages. But I think after this, it just pissed him off. You know, Marvin was walking away. He was walking the streets free, and Mm -hmm. he was, and Dwight Dixon was getting laughed at for, you know, getting walked all over, basically. And now he made it a point to eat breakfast every day at this place called Chopstick and Fork Diner, which was a half a block from the Playmakers. Oh, wow. (laughs) Just hoping, I guess, that Marvin would always see him around and have to watch his back. And, the funny thing is, um, Dwight Dixon, he doesn't live anywhere near here. He just wants to be over there just so I don't know if he can just keep an eye on Marvin or just make him scared. say It's not like he can hide. He's 300 pounds. True. He's a big boy from pictures. On July 21st, 2009, according to surveillance video captured from a nearby convenience store, Dwight came out of the Chopstick and Fork Diner and walked to his car, 
got into his car and made a phone call. And about three minutes later, a six-foot-tall man in a black hoodie and white sneakers ran up to the driver's side and shot Dwight multiple times through the window. Then the man sprinted around the hood to the passenger side and shot Dwight again. Please don't tell me it was a 5.7. And the shooter then ran away. What? Oh, I don't know. Dwight spent the next two months in the hospital with a... He lived? With a tracheotomy tube jammed in his windpipe, so if you want to call it that. He was only able to communicate with his family by blinking, and he <gasps> ended up dying September oh. 4th, 2009. Oh, well, so the shooting was July 21st. He died September 4th. He held on for quite a while, yeah. though. According, according to multiple sources, the main suspect in Dwight's, Dwight Dixon's death was Lonnie Harrison, Marvin's cousin, the one I talked about before. Mm-hmm. Acting on a tip, police searched Lonnie's apartment looking for a gun. The apartment was a tiny room above Deborah's Kitchen, which was the soul food restaurant that Marvin owns. Oh, wow. And it's on Gerard Street, which is the same street as, as the... What's it called? Playmakers? Chopstick and Fork Diner, where Dwight was shot. But Lonnie hadn't even been living there for a year. There was no gun or any other evidence to tie him to the murder, and no witnesses ever came forward to identify Lonnie or anyone else as the shooter. The shooter's face on the video was too blurry and to make out a positive ID. Uh-huh. But, I mean, if he's like six foot, that's about the size of Marvin Harrison. He's six foot 185. So it's hard to find anything on Lonnie Harrison, but I saw he was involved in a traffic stop in 2019. Mm -hmm. He was arrested for possessing PCP, cocaine, and marijuana, and his bail was set at 75,000. So, heck, he might still be in jail. The cops recovered a second surveillance tape from Playmakers. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Okay. This tape showed a man crossing in front of the bar on 28th Street, just below Garrard. Detectives were pretty sure that it was the same man they had seen on the convenience store tape. Okay. But just as the man got close enough to the camera to bring his face into focus, the tape went blank. Sure did. It always does. Right? And skipped the next three minutes. So for the previous hour of the tape, the camera picked up every movement. Then just so happens to go blank just at that very moment. What a random glitch. Who tampered with that tape? I don't know. So, I mean, come on. Bro. What do you think? Oh, this man. (laughs) This man went from being the cream of the crop to just a little shit. (laughs) I mean, you got to think, if Marvin did the first shooting and got away with it, what's stopping him from trying again and finishing the job when it all cooled down. He knows where Dwight hangs out. I mean, he's constantly seeing him a half block away. Yeah, he did it. Had to have. But he does... Nobody knows. He does have the money to hire somebody. Yeah, that's true. Got a lot of it. And just, it just, it's like, he did so good when he was in Indianapolis. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm all, like I said earlier, I'm all for, like, helping out the community with all you're making. But some people just don't need to go back to where they belong. It's like when... Uh, Especially there. I mean... Yeah. Find, find a nice house somewhere. Settle no, down. You can still donate and be a part oh, of yeah. it. But... Th- I can understand he was maybe trying to make his neighborhood a better place, but... Obviously not. I don't know if he really made it a better place or not. He ended up being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2016, though. He's now 49 years old. He's got a wife named Dawn, and he has two kids, Jet and Marvin Jr. And Marvin Jr. is actually playing college football at Ohio State University, trying to follow his dad's footsteps. He got out good. (laughs) But Marvin Harrison, he stays pretty quiet about his personal life. He's continued to make appearances at Hall of Fame inductions, Specifically, he was at Peyton Manning's in 2021. And then he actually could soon be earning another honor himself as he has once again been named to the College Football Hall of Fame ballot for 2023. So it's like 
this never happened. I'm just still going back to when he's sitting there like in the precinct and they're asking him those questions. <laughs> I just feel like the gun is so obvious. Like, yes, they can't match the gun to him. I mean, I don't under, or they won't match the gun right. for him. Not that they can't or haven't. They won't. And then the DA was too afraid to look bad that she, you know, dismissed the whole thing. Crazy. That's all I got for you. That's sorry. That makes me so angry. <laughs> this this case has made me so very many angry. loose ends. Angry inside. So many things. Damn. <laughs> Marvin. Come on, Marv. Don't also I'm glad that your son got got out and he's got a college career going, but you just got jinxed out. him with the name Marvin. Got out. Marvin Harrison's got a net worth of like twenty six million. I mean, he's easily gonna get out. He probably could have gone to any college he wanted to just off of Marvin Harrison's name, name alone. Wow. Well, guys, just another reason to love the NFL. <laughs> hey, I'm still going to watch tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Caught Red Podcast. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as we've been enjoying doing it together. I do love seeing how excited Jesse gets when we get like new followers on Instagram or when he looks and he sees like, oh, he's like, look at all these listens we had today. Like his face lights up. And that's not a pun on our name or anything. <laughs> or this follower's got a dog. What? What? Look at that. Like I said, he's been working really hard to get this all going and to keep it going. If you don't already follow us on Instagram, please look us up at Caught Red Podcast, spelled P A W D. We have a link tree in the bio. You can see everywhere we're available to listen. You can also see access to our website on there. We would love to hear from you. So send us a message or you can email us. And like it doesn't even be like crime related. I mean, you can just like send us pictures of your dogs or something. I would be just as thrilled. She'd probably prefer that. (laughs) Uh, You can contact us through the site. And my brother has recently created us like a little section on there just for case suggestions. So if you have anything that you want to shoot our way, go right ahead. And if you want to leave us a review, please do. That way other people can listen in and find us. And we will be back next week with another case. And it'll be time for our next bonus episode about horror stuff. It's going to be like Jesse's favorite because it's about zombies. Let's go. He loves him some zombies. But until then, stay local, shop local, murder local.